Our first scripture reading today is from Jeremiah 17. Uh, as we preach through the book of Galatians in the New Testament, we are reading out of the Old. And in Galatians, in, or in uh, this part of Jeremiah, pardon me, uh, God's calling out to his people. He's trying to call them back to himself. He's trying to remind them of what they're doing, how they're going astray. And so I invite you, as, as Cody comes to read it, to listen to it. Listen to God call them and God call us. Cody. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from God. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for it le its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is a palace of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. We are continuing our series in the book of Galatians. Uh, if you are visiting this week or don't know much about Galatians, it's this kind of defense of the gospel message. Paul spends a long time on his testimony, but he's kind of building out this explanation of what the gospel is, why it's so important, uh, and, and why we should labor to protect it and to believe it. We're in the middle of Galatians 2, or the end of Galatians 2, really. Uh, and first, Lex is going to come read it for us, and then I'll be back. Lex. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might, be, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Uh, have you ever had the experience of being in a difficult class in high school or college, university, and you're sitting in class and your mind wanders for a minute, and then when you focus back in, 
you have no idea what the teacher or professor is talking about if you had that experience. That the content is sort of so tricky, it's so difficult to follow that unless you stay totally locked in, you just kind of lose it. This was organic chemistry for me, second year of university. A couple hundred people in the class. All the future doctors at the front, they're all nerding out over this stuff, you know, 4-ethyl, 2-methylhexane, and they're all excited about it or whatever. And I'm just in the back struggling, even when I'm paying attention. Like, I'm not doing well. I'm like, what is happening? What's, you don't understand the content, at least for me, at that point in my life, is just too tough. It's too tricky. It's too hard to follow. In one of the most relatable parts in the whole New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 uh, Peter 3.16, he says some of the things the Apostle Paul writes are hard to understand. And it's as if Peter is in the back of the Apostle Paul's class trying to keep up with the content. And Paul's sort of up at the, 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 the chalkboard, I don't think there's chalkboards anywhere, up at the front, and he's like teaching at this PhD level, and Peter's like, I'm just trying to pass. I don't exactly know what's going on. The, the content is difficult. And I find that very relatable because of passages like the one Lex just read for us, Galatians 2, 15 to 21. On the surface, you read it and you're like, well, the words are English, at least in our translation. The words are comprehensible, but also after you read it, you're wondering, wait, what, what was that about? What, what did it mean? What was Paul's point? And as Jim, uh, who works here, and, and me, we were studying this text earlier in the week, we spent a lot of our time just writing down what Paul was saying, we thought Paul was saying, like, line after line. What's his point here? What's this verse about? How does this connect to the previous verse? What questions were he answering? Because I think the content is kind of tricky. Now, the good news for you is I've completely solved it, and I have no remaining questions. And no, uh, I, I do think I have a decent handle on what Paul's up to in this text, I think I understand some of the questions that are in the back of his mind. What is he trying to answer for us? But let me just say, just before we get into this, some parts of the scripture are always going to remain a mystery to us. I'm often left with questions that have inadequate answers, um, or I'm not exactly sure what it all means. I don't think we have to arrive at the end of a sermon or at the end of a Bible study or just your own Bible reading time feeling completely satisfied. Part of the journey is just, let's plug away at it. Let's listen to what the text says. What does God have for me today? Because I think it's very true. Even if we only get half of what Paul wants to communicate, I think it's still going to be very rich, okay? So first, we're going to do, uh, here's the outline for today. Part one is called the math of justification. The math of justification. Don't get too triggered, again, your college classes or whatever. It's not hard math. Uh, and then parts two, three, and four are sort of three intertwined questions that Paul is answering with regards to justification. He's asking, what if we still sin? Does the law still have a purpose? And how should we live going forward? So I'll, I'll get back to those. But let's begin with the math of justification. Part of the reason this text feels a bit mystifying is because if you, if you turn to this section in like a regular Bible, or even if you, you know, scroll to it in your digital Bible, it's separated from 11 through 14 by a paragraph break, and in the ESV by a section heading. Now, we love and appreciate Bible translators, you know, two thumbs up to Bible translators here, but the way it's laid out in this case, it's not helping us. Because if you turn to your Bible, it looks like, oh, here's a bunch of random standalone theological thoughts with no relevance to what comes before it. But that's the wrong way to think about it. 
This section of theology, it's kicked off by what comes before it. And if you were here last week, we talked about it. I'll give you a very brief summary. Paul confronted Peter about pulling back from eating with the Gentiles. Paul said, you're, you're not walking in step with the gospel. Remember, you're not ortho-walking with the gospel. Because Peter is reverting to this idea that you need faith in Jesus and following the law. He's being a hypocrite. He's being a coward. And that's all, that's all bad. And so what Paul is doing then in this section is he's offering some theological insights into why Peter's actions were so egregious, so terrible. And if you don't read these sections back to back, it's not going to make as much sense. But if you look at the beginning of where we picked it up, verse 15, he says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, that sounds like an insult to all, all the non-Jewish people. Look at all those Gentile sinners. What he means by this is that Gentiles are not following the law of Moses. Of course, they're not, they're not doing that. And up until Christ, if you were a Gentile, you had to become culturally, religiously Jewish in order to be, become saved, be part of the people of God. The Gentiles were outside of the covenant. In contrast, the Jews, the historic people of God. But even the, the faithful Jewish people over here, Paul says, still in verse 15, a person is not justified by works of the law. Okay, so here's our first piece of justification math. Works of the law do not equal, you know, equal sign with like the little slash through it. Works of the law do not equal justification. Now let's define our terms. Works of the law, that does not mean doing good things per se. It means doing good things, doing good works, obeying the law in order to get something. Okay, in order to get something. So works of the law roughly equated with phrases like this. Uh, upward religious striving to reach God by our own effort. Or trusting in our good works to reach to God. Or legalism, depending on strict obedience to the law in order to be made right with God. All of these things. That's what works of the law mean. Not just doing good things. That's fine. We're in favor of doing good things. Good things done in order to get salvation or right standing with God. Okay, now what about justification? What does justification mean? Technically, it's a legal term for being declared innocent, being reckoned not guilty. That kind of helps. But actually, you can translate the Greek word underneath justification to either mean justification or counted righteous. And again, if you have a Bible with you, you may note they put like a little letter or a little number there indicating it could be translated this way instead. Now, what does it mean to be counted righteous? It means being counted as being good all the way down. A person who always does right. How can someone look at your life and figure out, should we count this person among the good people, the clean people, the innocent people? Paul says it can't be because of your good works. Which is opposite to how most of us and maybe most of our society thinks. When we say, oh, she's a good person, what do we normally mean by that? Oh, we mean that person, she does good things. She's kind, she's generous, she laughs at my jokes or whatever. Um, but how is ultimate righteousness, ultimate goodness calculated? You can't equate it with good works. You can't get there by good works because no one does good all the time. No one has perfect motives all the time. None of us get it all right. As soon as we begin to speak not in, or when we, when we begin to speak in ultimate terms, there are no good people because we all mess up sometimes. And that's why Paul says, you can't be justified. Justification does not equal works of the law. You're not going to be able to be counted righteous based on what you do. You'll never make it. You'll never measure up. And Paul would know because he tried. <laughs> he, in other parts, he like lists his moral life. And he's like, I'm better at morals than you. I'm a Jew among Jews. And he kind of lists this whole resume. But he knows that route was too difficult. 
Works of the law do not equal justification. Okay, second piece of math. There's only two, so the second piece of math. A person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. That's still in verse 16. Not justified by works of the law, but instead through faith in Jesus Christ. So faith in Jesus Christ equals justification. Now how does that work? How does believing in Jesus lead to a divine declaration that we're good and clean? Well, notice, Paul says, it's not because you are generically religious. Generic religious faith does not save. Paul is not suggesting or proposing a religious buffet from which one could choose Jesus and someone else could choose the Norse gods, and as long as you're sincere, it doesn't really matter. He says, faith in Jesus Christ is what saves. And the reason it it works, so to speak, is because what happened on the cross was a trade, a great exchange. Christ took your sins and paid for them with his life, and in exchange, he offers you forgiveness and his perfect record. Now, theologians like to call this double imputation, and that will be on the exam. Please remember it. No, uh, But double imputation, it, all it means is you get two things. If you have faith in Jesus, you get two things. You get forgiveness of your sins, and you get Christ's record accredited to your account. So if you believe in Jesus, God no longer holds your life and deeds against you. He, he reckons Christ's life, Christ's deeds, to your account. Let me give you an illustration, see if this helps. Growing up, we had a chess game on a very early desktop computer. I think it was a Commodore 64, but it's been a long time. I can't quite remember. Even on this early machine, uh, you could play chess against the computer, against like a very primitive AI or whatever. And even then, at least for me, the, ch- or the computer would beat me soundly at chess. You play the computer, it just it thumps you. But the game designers had helpfully included an option, just like on one of the menu things. Whenever you wanted, you could trade sides. And so if you're playing, you know, the white pieces and you're happily playing along against the computer, you could switch to black at any time. You, you take their position and they take yours at any point of the game. Now, of course, being kids, being a kid, as I'm getting just walloped by the computer, as the computer's pieces are closing in and they take the knight and they take the queen or whatever, and they're closing in on the king, you're maybe a move or two away from checkmate we'd switch sides. (laughs) It's like, well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to trade my black position for the white position. And as soon as that happens, with one click of a button, my sudden, or my my desperate, dire circumstance transformed, (laughs) you know, in in a very silly way. Uh, Death for life, victory for defeat. And what Jesus is offering humanity on the cross is a great exchange. His life for yours His record for yours, his victory for your defeat, his spotless life for your filthy sins. We're not playing against Jesus, but there is still an exchange that is offered. And God reckons us justified, clean, good, because when he looks at his people, what he sees is the life of Jesus. And what does he see? What does he say about Jesus? He says, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. See, math feels impersonal, with apologies to all of you who really love math. But justification math is actually intensely personal because it leads us to relationship with God. It enables us to know him as father, to experience his his love. So in summary, works of the law do not equal justification. Faith in Jesus does equal justification. Now part of the reason verse 16 is so confusing is because Paul says it all twice. If you kind of really pull it apart, he says it forward and backward, both, piece of, both pieces of math. Now, when you re- repeat yourself in writing, that's for emphasis. 
And Paul is repeating it for us both ways as if to sort of, you know, triple stamp or double stamp, you know, no erases it. He wants to say, this is really important that you understand it. And recall, that's what Peter was getting wrong. He went back to works of the law even after trusting Christ. He used to believe you could be saved by faith alone in Jesus, but in this one circumstance, he reverts to the old way. And that is, means actually something important for us. If the Apostle Peter, the rock of the church, if he didn't understand and he sometimes forgot that he was justified by faith, then I bet some of the rest of us don't understand or sometimes forget that we are justified by faith as well. If the Apostle Peter could forget, I bet we can forget too. Some days, if I forget to read my Bible, some days when I lose my temper at my children, or I grumble at some issue that has come my way, on some days I can feel, I can subjectively feel like a pretty poor Christian. Maybe you have that experience. That on on a particular day, if it's really going badly, I'm like, I'm 8% worse at being a Christian than I was yesterday. And when it comes to those particularly down days, it's, it's so helpful to be reminded that if you are a Christian, you are not saved because you were good at being a Christian. That's not why you're a Christian. You're a Christian because Christ died for you. Your faith is not in your own efforts, but in the efforts of Christ. I am not a Christian because I'm good at being a Christian. Have you thought about it that way? I'm a Christian because I have Christ's forgiveness and his spotless record by faith. That is why I'm a Christian. And when our sin and when our faults and our errors bring us low, it's extremely important to remember. This is the math of justification, and it's beautiful math. But I also think in the back of Paul's head, as he's writing this, are some important questions, some objections. Perhaps they're real Galatian questions. Maybe they were asking these things. Maybe Paul's logical brain is just sort of firing, and he's answering stuff. We aren't sure. But I want to get into the three kind of interlocking, intertwining questions. And the first one starts there in, in verse 17. He writes... But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So here is the question. What if we still sin after justification, after we've been justified through faith in Christ? It's a good question. It's one we're still asking. We ask this question through polls because we're like, well, the actions of Christians and the actions of non-Christians in some moral area are essentially the same. So what do we do with that? And we also ask it in very personal situations when we're sinned against by a real-life Christian. What happens if a Christian parent is abusive or a Christian coworker is dishonest or something like that? We sit back and wonder, does having faith in Jesus Christ, being considered righteous by God, does it make any difference to how a person lives? And if we follow Paul's line of thought, he says, and if it doesn't, then isn't, just, isn't Jesus just enabling sin? At some point, a thoughtful person begins to wonder, if every sin can be forgiven, then why stop sinning at all? Can you see the objection? It's not really in the text, it's in the subtext. Now, by way of answer, let me acknowledge, it's of course true, objectively true, that Christians sin. Christian parents sin, and Christian children sin, and Christian coworkers sin. So at some level, at some point, of course you're going to experience this. But I think what Paul goes on to argue in this section is that the life Christians live post-justification is also supposed to be, if you look at the end of verse 20, kind of skip down a bit, it's supposed to be lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this still isn't terribly explicit, but I think Paul is telling us 
Those who are justified have understood something important, that Jesus loves them and gave himself for them. And that truth, when it's like activated, when it's lived out, it's supposed to give a better and stronger motivation for avoiding sin than any other motivation we could come up with. In Romans 6, when Paul answers a very similar question, he says, oh, when a person is justified, their old nature dies. Their old self is crucified with Christ. The power of sin is broken. And in the place of that old life, new, new habits of, of godliness begin to emerge. So to be justified is to begin a new life, but simply because you have begun a new life does not mean that the older life doesn't sometimes sort of crop out or, or, or burst out in the midst of the new life. If you are a football coach or a hockey coach and one of your players makes an error or commits a penalty or something, and after the game, the parent, parent, their parent comes to you and say, why did you teach my son to commit penalties? Well, what would your response as a coach be? You'd say, I'm not teaching him to commit penalties or turnovers. That just happens as players learn and grow. I'm teaching him to develop his skills and play fairly and well and be a good teammate, you know, blah, 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 all that coach stuff. But the undeveloped player, the immature player, he's still in there. He's still, he's still in there. It's being grown out of slowly. The player is developing, but of course, mistakes get made. And in a similar way, as Christian sin, that isn't a byproduct of the new life. It's a remnant of the old life. Christ doesn't produce those things in us. It's a, it's a weed coming up in the midst of the, the new grass seed you've planted. And furthermore, though it's not stated here, I think we can say you can tell a Christian by their response to sin. Those who belong to Jesus, they're resisting sin. They're trying to put it to death. They're trying to escape its tentacles. They own up to it. They apologize for when it happens. So Christ is certainly not, to use Paul's language, a servant of sin because he is creating new people that resist sin. Now the second question is related to the first. If all this faith in Christ equals justification, then what is the purpose of the law? Do we have to obey any law if we're Christians? If we don't need it at all, what's, what's the law doing? Look at verse 18. Paul writes, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now here's why this passage is confusing. What did Paul tear down? <laughs> what, is, what, might he be, what might he rebuild? Why would that mean he's a sinner? Paul is skipping from one topic to the next, and we're trying to, like, trying to keep up. Well, what did Paul tear down? We could say that he tore down the old way of understanding justification. He tore down this old understanding that the works of the law could save a person. And actually, just to give you a sense of how Jews of this era thought, I want you to listen to this. Uh, 1992, a researcher, a good Dutchman named Peter W. Vanderhorst, he published an inscription that he found on a first century Jewish uh, like, uh, tomb, like a gravestone. And it marked the burial place of a woman named Regina. I think is how you pronounce her name, Regina. The inscription said this, and I've edited it slightly for, for, uh, for brevity's sake. Here lies Regina. She will live again, for she can hope. She will rise to the life promised and to an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you. This your chaste life. This your love for your people. This your observance of the law. This your devotion to your wedlock. For all these deeds, your future or your hope for the future is assured. And did you catch that epitaph? It essentially summarizes a religion based on following the rules of good deeds that Re Regina, or at least her, her friends and family, felt assured of her eternal life. Why? Because of her piety and her chastity and her commitment to marriage and her love for her people and her observance of the law. And Paul says, 
That's what I'm tearing down. That's what's been torn down by the works of Christ. That system is gone. So if he rebuilds it, if he resurrects that system of law-keeping as a way of inheriting eternal life, then Paul says, I'm going to be a sinner then. I'm going to be a transgressor. I'm going to lead people astray. But let's go on. So what purpose does the law now have? Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I may live to God. Now look carefully. Who died? Not the law. Paul says he died. What did he die to? He died to the law. Now you're like, what does that mean? It means that Paul renounced the law's ability to save. Paul says, I've left the world where the law could be a means of salvation. I've entered a new world where I now live to God. So what purpose does the law now have? It cannot save. It can only condemn. As long as we treat it as a means to salvation, we've torn down that way. In essence, we have died. If you're a Christian, we have died to the law as a means of getting something from God. That was never going to work. It was never going to be a way forward. But Paul says, but now we live to God. That means in our new life, we've entered the new world of justification. We can obey God. We can love him and want to please him, not to get something from him, not to extract salvation from him, but simply because we love him. Now, in the best and healthiest parent-child relationships, even if you're a grown adult, we obey our parents or we listen to our parents, we honor them, not because we are worried about the relationship, but because we love them and respect them and want to please them. Like, if you have a healthy relationship with your father, you don't listen to him because you are worried that if you don't listen to him, he will disown you. No, that's not on the table when you have a good father. He will love you no matter what. He will never stop being a kind and good father to you. But you listen to your father and you honor him because you want to be close with him. You want him to be pleased with you. And this is what I think Paul is arguing. This is how the law functions for those who have been justified. It's not a means to be justified or to be close to God. God is already close to us, but it's a means by which we please him and honor him as God. In Galatians, we'll say more about this, so we'll, we'll leave it there for now. But that takes us to question three. How should we be living and you can kind of see how these are all entwined. There's these complex interactions between sin and forgiveness and obedience and the law and our life with God. But we finally get to verse 20. It's a famous coffee cup verse. I mean, not the coffee cups at Resurrection Church. We only put weird verses on coffee cups. But all the normal coffee cup verses, uh, verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Okay, I have a Bible trivia question. Are you ready? How many things does the Bible say were nailed to the cross of Christ? I'll give you a second to think about it. How many things does the Bible say were nailed to the cross of Christ? Not literally, but metaphorically. I count at least four, but if, you have, if I've missed any, come and correct me after the service. So first, Jesus. That's the obvious one. Hopefully you got that one. Uh, second, the sign above Jesus, you know, the public pronouncement of his name and, and his supposed crime, king of the Jews. Third, Colossians 2 says our sins, our spiritual debt was nailed to the cross. It explicitly says that, Colossians 2. And fourth, if you have faith in Jesus, Paul writes here that you were too. You were crucified. So the crucifixion is not just a, a historical fact that we remember. Paul says, spiritually speaking, you were crucified with Christ. And in, in, in what way, or what does that mean? Well, does it mean that you died to pay for sins the way Christ did? It means that in a mysterious way, 
If you're a Christian, your whole personhood, your whole self is united with Christ. You are identified with him. When you put your faith in Christ, you die with Christ, you are buried with Christ, you are raised with Christ. There is an inseparable spiritual union that comes about. In fact, John Calvin writes, as long as Christ remains outside of us, or we are separated from him, then all he has suffered and done remains useless and of no value to us. Did you catch what Calvin wrote? If he is separate, no value. But if you are a Christian, you're united with Christ in his death. You went to the cross with him. The old you has died. The old nature has passed away. The old you that the law passed judgment on, slammed its gavel down on, that's gone. Now this verse does not mean, as it's sometimes taught, that your personalities or interests or yourself, your uniqueness is obliterated. It's not what Paul's saying. I actually think that part of you is enlivened by Christ. You become more you But the old part, the sinful part of you, is now dead. And in its place, Christ now lives in your life right now. It is easy to think, friends, that our bodies, our lives in Ottawa and Gatineau are pretty mundane. I mean, how much of your life is spent, like, sleeping and eating, taking care of your body? And it's kind of easy to separate the part of my day that feels very spiritual from all of the normal stuff. There's like this giant pile of normal stuff and this little sliver of spiritual things. It's easy to think like that. But Paul says, no, no, no. Every moment you live in the flesh, in the body, with your skin on, he says, it's all lived by faith, all of it. And so Christ changes us moment by moment into different people all day long. Different, a different kind of friend, a different kind of employee, a different child, a different parent. And, and it comes out, as we saw with the Apostle Peter, remember, who we eat with, the kind of people we're afraid of, the kind of situations that make us into cowards, everything we hope and fear and dream, how we eat, what, what kind of things we eat. So how do we move forward? The same way we were justified, by faith, That Christ is at work in all of the mundane things as surely as he was at work in our justification. Okay, we got got to wrap up here. Let me give you a few summary thoughts. We're talking about the math of justification by faith. We are treated as clean and good and righteous and innocent by God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. We've dealt with some objections, some questions, but the law and sin... But Martin Luther once wrote about justification, what we've been talking about today. He called it the principal article of Christian doctrine. He says, quote, most necessary it is that we know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Now, if you know Luther at all, he has a bit of an edge to him. But here's why I quote him. Because we all get hard-headed at times. I do. Some of us, we get caught up thinking about how good of a Christian we are how well we're doing, and we forget all of our good works count for nothing when it comes to justification math. But on the other side, some of us get so overwhelmed at how poorly we're doing and how messed up we are and how often we sin that we forget it wasn't your good works that saved you in the first place. And still others of us, we have so many questions and so many doubts and we feel like bad Christians because the easy answers don't do it for us anymore. We don't really believe them. We've forgotten it wasn't because you had memorized the Westminster Confession of Faith that you were saved. It was because Christ loved you and died for you. And still others of you here, you aren't Christians at all. And we're very glad you're here with us. But I would tell you, you must take hold of Christ by faith. It is offered freely, but it must be received. You cannot fix yourself. 
Jesus is not here just to prop you up. He is here to rescue and save you. And that salvation, it must be received by a humble heart. But I hope you can see this morning, this doctrine of justification by faith, it humbles the proud, it breaks the strong, it encourages the weak, it strengthens the failing, and it nurses the sick back to health, and it can make those who are spiritually dead live. The Son of God has loved us, and he has given himself for us. Let us believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful and we thank you, not just for this doctrine spelled out, but for how this doctrine came to be, that Christ died in our place for our sins. May you make this live in our hearts. May it not simply be resigned to theology textbooks, but may it come alive for us in our different emotional and physical states throughout the week and all of our roles in our lives. Make it live. And may you live in our hearts. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.